What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. On January 23rd, 1961, just four days after President John F. Kennedy was sworn into office, a B-52 bomber crashed near Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Two H-bombs, each 250 times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Japan marking the end of World War II, were thrown out and fell at a velocity of 700 miles per hour and crashed into Goldsboro, North Carolina. 
Information about this event was kept classified until 2013. This is the true story of that mission as told by the man who actually dismantled the hydrogen bombs in the aftermath of an accident that could have been the worst man-made disaster in history. Here's Earl Smith with the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. Well, I graduated high school in 1956 in Hatton, Alabama. And like everybody else around there, the day after you graduate high school, you go to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I go to Kalamazoo to visit my brother. I had a brother and two sisters live there. And uh, my brother had a neighbor about my age. And so we decided to go downtown on a Saturday morning just to fool around. And so there was a recruiter station. I said, let's go and make that thing. God, I think we're going to join. So, so it was in the morning. We were down there. So uh, by... Uh, Three o'clock that afternoon, we was pulling out on a train for the processing station in the Air Force. So anyway, when I went back, my brother and him was about to have a heart attack. He said, you did what? I said, I joined the Air Force. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, I did. I got to leave this afternoon. <laughs> and I left. We signed up on a buddy plan, and after that, I never saw my buddy again. So he goes to California uh, for schooling, and I go to um, Texas. And the first school I w went to is uh, called Munition School. And uh, they give you different tests to see kind of what you qualified for. So this uh, first assignment, they send me to down to Puerto Rico, Ramey Air Force Base. So I go down, down to uh, Puerto Rico there, and uh, well, I'm doing the job at what's a munition maintenance uh, called for, which is basically taking care of the bombs and the ammo in the storage area and loading them on the plane, what have you. Well, the Air Force decided to start a airborne alert with nuclear weapons. So we had 33 B-36 bombers down there. So they started what they call Operation Curtain Razor. Every day at one o'clock, a plane would leave Ramey and at the same time, another plane would leave North Africa. There's one always, always in the air, and five on the ground, or five days on the ground, with loaded with nuclear weapons, each one ready to go, and ammunition. So anyway, when I leave Puerto Rico, they formed a new squadron called the 53rd MMS, uh, which is Munitions Maintenance Squadron. And we wound up at, at uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Back then, I, you know, I, I just figured I'd rather disarm a bomb and eat when I was hungry, you know, but uh, real reckless, you know, that back then. But, but I'm the same kid that when I was growing up, all the little neighbor kids older than me, they taught me into turning over the neighbor's beehive and stuff like that, and I throw his bucket in the well, the old dug wells, and I'd do stuff like that. I was real daring. <laughs> so I guess it stems from back from something like that. I had put in for bomb disposal school, but before you can get in, uh, you have to, I understand, have to have a, a grade of 90 or above, I believe, from munition man for them to put the money behind you, and it's strictly voluntary. So I received an appointment after a few months to go to uh, EOD school in Indianapolis, Maryland. Well, the school, the school, like I say, was, was, was extremely hard. Uh, you just literally live from day to day and hope you can make it through another day. Because the man, when they're in the indoctrination, first of all, they take you out in this field. It's like about a 20-acre field. And they have everything that's ever been thrown, dropped, or projected 
from all over the world up to a V-1 and V-2 rocket. It hadn't got to the, you know, the big rockets at the time. And they, a man tells you, he said, gentlemen, before you graduate this school, if you're fortunate enough to graduate this school, you'll be able to walk up to any piece of ordnance out here and tell me what it is, what kind of explosive used in it, what kind of fusion system, and what country's from, and how to disarm it. And everybody's punching everybody, yeah, sure, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, it's, but before you leave that school, that's one of the easier things you can do. You're not even got into the, to the big, big uh, missiles and what have you. But really, the nuclear bombs hadn't entered, hadn't entered my mind. I, I, I just, I never dreaming that I'd have anything dropped in my lap like was dropped in my lap. But once I, uh, I get back to my base after I graduate, and uh, it happened to be my night on uh, standby. It was January, it was actually January the 23rd, 1961, when the control tire called me. And they said, uh, we have a B-52 coming in, tail number 0187, with fuel leaks in the Bombay area. Well, I knew that was serious because when they go to let the landing gear down, you possibly have sparks could, you know, create a fire. And I lived off base, so it had been a snow on the ground. It was about 10 degrees that night, so I got dressed right quick, and I didn't bother to lace my boots on it. I just wrapped the strings around them, tied them. But by the time I got to the base, they determined it had crashed off base about 12 miles. So General Moore had already had a helicopter waiting for me because the EOD man has a first priority on what they call a, a broken arrow. The bomb that fell was a Mark 39 uh, bomb, which is actually 3.8 megatons of explosive. And a lot of people don't know how, how much a megaton is. If you take a, a railroad car, coal car, and you load it heaping up with TNT, it would stretch all the way across the United States and back in far Chicago. That's only one point one megaton. Only one megaton. This was three point eight. And you've been listening to Earl Smith, the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. You're going to want to hear the rest of this story here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past. Know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we continue here with our American stories, and we just learned from Earl Smith that just one of the two hydrogen bombs that fell on Goldsboro, North Carolina in 1961 contained 3.8 megatons of explosives. Here's Earl making that statistic understandable to laymen. The experts claimed that it would, uh, with the fallout and everything, if one of them had gone off, it would kill everybody all the way from New York City, all down the eastern seaboard to the tip of the Florida Keys. So pretty much wiping off the, the whole eastern seaboard. 
It was 250 times stronger than what was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, that was only 40 kilotons. So this thing was, it was just, just a monster. So when we get out to the, to the things, he had a light under the helicopter and we're flying around and I see a parachute. I said, my God, they're not supposed to be connected. Uh, so I said, set me down as close as you can get to it. And the guy said, but I don't want to get too close. I said, it don't matter, buddy. You get me as close as you can. So General Moore tells me, he said, now you can't touch that bomb or anything until we get permission from Atomic Energy Commission. I said, no, sir, that's not the way it works. And that scared me. So I got off and see what to do. And I walk up to the bomb. And when I opened that access door and saw that red A, I mean, I just, I just turned cold. I mean, it's scariest thing. I, I was 24 years old, and and as the old saying, well, what am I doing here? You know, that was uh, uh, something I just didn't sign up for. But uh, it was, it was, uh, it was armed and functioning. And, and I, I thought, I really thought at that point when I couldn't find that other bomb, I thought I was dying. I, I mean, it's funny what you can tell your, your mind, you can tell yourself, and I did. I was pain. I had the the pains in the chest, and everything was was right around. I mean, buddy, I, I knew I was going. I was going fast, but I had to get get done what I could. And I happened to look over in the distance. There was about a five mile area that was literally lit up uh, with parts of the plane burning. And I saw an ambulance over with the big big uh, uh, cross on it. And I started to feel better for some reason or other, you know. So, so a few hours later. A few hours ever general seemed like an Air Force showing up, and uh, General Moore, who was a uh, General Moore, was one star general, and General Sweeney, who was the the uh, the commander of Eighth Air Force, of which I was assigned to. Anyway, he starts asking me what all, what did you do first, blah 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 blah, and I said, well, sir, I'm probably in a lot of trouble. He said, what do you mean? Well, when uh, General Sweeney found out that. Uh, I had uh, been told by General Moore that I had to get permission from Atomic Energy Commission. He turned to his uh, aide and said, get General Moore over here. I said, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. So General Moore comes up, and the very words he said to General Moore, he said, General Moore, if you don't know this man's damn job, I suggest you have him up to your office about two to three times a week for coffee and donut so he can explain to you what the hell he does. Oh, Lord, my heart just sunk because General Moore's going back to 8th Air Force, and here I'm going to be stuck on base with this general, and I'm a little old airman, first class, enlisted man, you know, and he made him look bad, made him look real bad. Nothing ever came of it, but uh, that was, I was more scared of that than I was the bomb. I wasn't worried about the bomb. I knew I could take it. <laughs> well, about an hour and a half later, three more uh, uh, the EOD man, a Sergeant Fletcher, and a Sergeant uh, Fincher, and a Sergeant Evers, they came out in the pickup, and we proceeded to disarm the, the, the first bomb. And uh, what happens, those bombs are so powerful, they have to be let down by parachute because they blow the plane out of the air. But they can be set up to 46 hours. This can be that long a delay because they don't worry about uh, uh, the Russians coming up and disarming them because if they don't do exactly the steps as they're supposed to be, it'll blow up anyway. So we knew that part too. So you got to do disconnect one CKT wire and then wait 
three minutes or so and so, and then, you know, it's the steps. You have to do it exactly. So that's that's the reason for the parachute. So anyway, we get this bomb taken care of, and I called out uh, the motor pool for them to get a to bring a flatbed truck out so they could get in a, in a lift to get this bomb to go back to the base. In other words, it's it's taken care of. Well, eight and a half hours after this happened, this Lieutenant Ravel shows up with a crew from SAC headquarters, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and he comes marching out there like little Lord Fortenroy, taking in charge. Well, the first thing he did was we, we finally found a second bomb, and it was, well, it really took about about three days before we really got to the park, because everything had to be done. We had to be real careful digging, because we get, had 92 detonators that were live, and those had to be, each one had to be counted for and put in a, a little container and got back to the base. <clears throat> well, when they got down, dug deep enough, to, for, for the big afterbody part where the parachute was still in, well, he, uh, Lieutenant Ravel and his group removed that out of the ground. That was just that afterbody. Well, I was the lowest ranking man <laughs> in, on there, so I, I got the, uh, the good duty of getting down in a hole, down in the, the, the muddy water and icy water and everything, reaching down in the hole and pulling up parts of the bomb and identifying uh, what each one was. And uh, I reached down, I got the, the, the uh, nuclear core, right it up between my legs, and I handed it to somebody, I don't remember who it was, but I told them I probably won't ever have any more kids. And I didn't after that. So once we got all of that stuff out in a tritium bottle, then there wasn't really anything else for them to, you know, that's explosive to where the big, the big diggers couldn't come in. And uh, the local people wouldn't drink the water. They were, you were scared to death. They wouldn't drink the water. So we got permission to bring three of the old timers around. I can't remember even what their names were. But anyway, I took a, a cup and poured some water in it, and I drank it. And I said, well, you know, do you think I would drink it if, you know, so that kind of gave him peace of mind. So we never heard any more thing about that. But they uh, told us to, uh, didn't want the public to know what we were looking for. There was one, a, a part had, which weighed about 3,000 pounds, which was uh, uranium-235 and 238. It hit hard pan and kept going. And we were looking for this. That's what all the digging was going to be about. But uh, they told us to tell everybody when they were reporting about us that we were looking for a part to an ejection seat. <laughs> made made a lot of now that's what we actually had to say, but one one poor man was a sharecropper, and he looks up and sees this humongous parachute with something in it. He thought the Russians were invading, so he grabbed a pound of cornbread and some milk and some blankets. They found him seven hours later under some bushes where they were looking for uh, Major uh, Shelton. He he was um, something had killed him. To, the body, three bodies were, were uh, killed, and two bodies were uh, in the wreckage immediately close to where the bomb was. But uh, five men survived. One man, Captain Maddox, he didn't have an ejection seat. So when everybody else ejected, he said he saw a, he saw a hole and he just dove for it, never dreaming he'd get out. So he made it through, and then uh, 
he, he hitched a ride somewhere back to the base. He still had his parachute. And the, the gate guard was talking about going to arrest him, thought he stole a parachute. But nobody, to my knowledge, has ever escaped jumping out of a jet plane and survived. And you're listening to Earl Smith. And my goodness, what he was up to that day in North Carolina. Well, we never knew about it until fairly recently. There's been a book written about it, a big bestseller. It's being optioned as a movie. The Goldsboro Broken Arrow is the thriller by Joel Dobson. The book inaccurately recounts the story from the perspective of Jack Ravel. And that's why we're bringing you Earl Smith's account. He was the guy who did the work, not the guy who wanted the credit. And we know the difference between those two when it comes to political theater and showboaters. When we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story The story of how one of the world's greatest man-made disasters was averted here on Our American Stories. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. 
criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. And we continue here with our American stories, and we love telling you these stories from history because they're important, and my goodness, these are things ordinary Americans do that are, well, they're just extraordinary. Let's return to Earl Smith picking up with three other men who helped him dismantle the hydrogen bomb back in 1961 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. They're the real heroes, too. Like I said, they're... they're they're all dead now, and what had happened before this, before I found out about all this, uh, somehow this Lieutenant Ravel had found out the other three guys were dead. So he thought I was dead too. So he proceeded to tell the story like all this, how he took care of that bomb, which was a bunch of crap. I mean, just out and out blatant lie or something like that, because he had nothing to do. That bomb was ready at the time he got shot, come on team, was taken care of, ready to go back to the base. And I imagine he was quite shocked when he found out that I was still alive. After I come come up there, and there was a lot of, lot of uh, publicity about it, after I got back home, this movie producer called me from Paris, France, and uh, he said he was making a movie called The Cold War, and he loved to tell my story in it. And he said, I'll fly you back up there and we'll pay all your expenses and everything. And I said, okay. So we, I went back up there in, in uh, April of that year. Well, the man who, uh, Kurt Keller, who is a principal person, he, is, he wants everything to be historically correct. And he's the uh, president of Historical Society for Goldsboro. Well, this lieutenant, when he was telling his story, me or neither three of the other guys were ever mentioned about anything. Never mentioned. Never mentioned. So that set me on fire about getting everything straight. So that's when I went back. They, they uh, or Kurt Keller invited me up to uh, tell the story. As a matter of fact, uh, when we made this movie, the man is flying over from Paris. The guy who's the uh, director or president of the Historical Society, he said... This Lieutenant Ravel was invited to be a part of it, too. He said, I'll take bets he won't show up. And guess what? He didn't. I was sure hoping to hell he would. After all that he told and this stuff, and, and after three dead men, uh, Sergeant Fincher, Sergeant Fletcher, and Sergeant uh, uh, Evers, well, all they'd done, I mean, they, they couldn't defend herself. And the way he did that, I, I lost any respect I ever might have had about him. And then when they write this book, they write this book, uh, I think they ended up being two books. I've only seen one, uh, Broken Arrow over Goldsboro. The man that wrote that, I, I finally had talked to him, and I said, I don't hold you. I, I said, uh, first of all, I asked him, where did you get this information? He said, well, from Lieutenant Ravel. I said, well, he told you a bunch of crap. And then I proceeded to tell him about what really happened. And he said, well, I figured 
he was an officer and a gentleman. And I said, well, you kind of figured wrong on this one, didn't Because he, he, he wasn't. Uh, turned out to be uh, other than that. But he never showed up when we went to film this movie, but that's the way it happened. I, I, I remember everything just, just like it was yesterday. I, I don't, because when something like that is, is, is so vivid, I mean, something is so important, you just don't forget it. But I, like I say, I never thought we were told to never, ever mention it. They say, you don't ever speak of this. You don't ever, you ever, you never, never, ever, ever speak of it. So that scared this old boy, so I kind of put it out of my mind, you know. Well, first of all, they said something that bothered me for many years because they were telling everybody that all the parts were found. And I knew that piece of uranium, 238 and 230, was still in that ground. And I didn't know where it, anything might have moved, where it might have finally started uh, doing something to the water supply. And it bothered me for many years about the people living down there. and, and, and uh, But uh, we were told, you know, you, you, you don't talk about this. You don't, you know. But they were telling, the Air Force was telling, we were looking for an injection seat to see what killed uh, Major Shelton. And they spent a little over a million dollars digging. Now, a million dollars in 1961 was a, was a lot of money, a lot of money. So they, they let us know right quick, you don't talk about it. They know. And President Kennedy had only been in office four days, and that was his first first uh, uh, speech I think he had to make about our, our press report, I guess. But like I said, I know there were a lot of generals, a lot of generals there, and uh, and a lot of media had started showing up until they finally had, they, well, they threatened with a $25,000 fine. That's what... Now they couldn't keep him out, but that's that's what they did. But it was boy, they said, "Hello, don't you don't say a word about this. Don't say a word about it, you know." So uh, I don't think that uh, there is. I thought for a long time I worried about it, but because when you think about it, uh, the radiation would have come from from the core, and we got the core out. But this this other's buried so deep. And uranium, that's where it comes from out of the ground anyway, so so uh, it's still on the ground. They're doing, they do regular testing on it. But in my later years, I I got in, I mostly selling RVs up, a dandy RV up in uh, uh, Oxford. And these men came in, and they were EOD men. So I mentioned to one of them, I said, uh, you know, I... I was ex EOD man. I said, I worked on a little job up in North Carolina. And he looked and looked at you. You worked on that job? I said, Yeah. I said, I sure did. I said, I was, I was on standby. I had it by myself for an hour and a half. He said, You know, it's all over the internet. And I said, Well, no. I mean, so boy, I finally got in, got on there, and after reading all that stuff, my blood started boiling, all that crap he was telling, you know. And, uh, I mean, not only just for myself or the other men that risk their lives. When you go out on something like that, you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, but for him to come in and try to take credit for something somebody else did is just not right. No, no way in the world. I, I, I don't, I don't hold any animosity toward him. He's at the time I, I could broke his neck when I first heard about it, but. But uh, you're not supposed to hate, and, and I mean, this the whole thing was just, I mean, just, just, just like something, something that's never, uh, that's never happening.
And you've been listening to Earl Smith telling the story of disarming a hydrogen bomb, no, two hydrogen bombs that fell on North Carolina back on January 23rd, 1961. This event was kept classified until 2013. And by the way, assuming that everyone had died, Lieutenant Jack Ravel decided to, well, do what we all know people like this, did what he thought he could do, take advantage of an opportunity and take credit for work done by other men. No surprise that he wasn't showing up wherever Earl Smith showed up, because, my goodness, Earl would have had detailed memory of disarming that bomb that, let's face it, Lieutenant Jack Ravel simply couldn't or didn't have. A great story. And by the way, we always welcome your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is just a... Look, you don't hear a guy talking about himself in heroic ways. He, he did what he was trained to do. And he did it with a bunch of guys. And a whole bunch of guys died probably trying to get this plane to land safely and not create, again, what would have been perhaps the worst man-made disaster in human history. Earl Smith's story, the story of a man who disarmed a couple of H-bombs in North Carolina back in 1961, the year of my birth, here on Our American Stories. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. 
That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Our American Stories, and as you all know, listener stories are some of our favorites. We play them a lot here. And send your listener stories to OurAmericanStories.com. There's a short form to fill out. You can type it up, send it to us, and you'll be hearing back from us. We love these stories. Your stories make this show what it is. Up next, Skip Reeves, who listens to us on KOA News Radio, 850 AM and 94.1 FM out of Denver. Skip found out something interesting about himself when he was in his 30s. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story. Skip Reeves' real name isn't actually Skip. My real name is Jory. As I understand, when my mother was pregnant with me, my grandfather would say to her during the course of the pregnancy, when is that little Skipper coming out of there? And so when I was born... The name Skipper just kind of stuck. I have four children that are grown at this point. I grew up to be a professional musician. I was a professional drummer at one time, and I had the moniker known as the world's tallest drummer because uh, I'm six feet 11. And so everywhere I would travel to perform, everybody would say, we've never seen a drummer as tall as you. Uh, I had the privilege of playing with uh, nationally known bands such as the Drifters, the Platters. I played with the Marvelettes, the female group from Motown. So I had a pretty happy career as a professional drummer. All in all, uh, I'm doing okay. My childhood, first of all, my father was in the military. He uh, was in the army for 25 years. So all of my childhood life, I was a military brat. We traveled around a lot, but I lived a good portion of my childhood in Germany. My childhood was a, was a, was a good one for the most part because I had a very loving, hands-on, attentive father. I had a very good father. I liked being in uh, my father, being in the military, all the traveling around. When I look back on it, really prepared me for life and all of the challenges that it would bring upon me as I moved through life. I was a little black kid, but you know, I grew up around a variety of races of people. So because of that and living in another country, I grew up to learn that people are just people. I didn't grow up with any kind of racial issues. Uh, my father didn't teach us any of that while we were growing up. Uh, I will tell you this, he certainly taught us to 
stand up for ourselves. He taught us, you know, hey, respect other people and have them respect you. So my father certainly didn't raise any of his kids to be pushovers or to be walked on or, or walked over. But uh, he raised us just to be decent people who, who, you know, make a positive contribution to society. So I grew up like that and uh, I'm still that same person to this day. But my father was a major, major influence on me because uh, he really was a man who loved his kids. He took care of us very well, cared about all of us deeply, and he would do anything he could to help us, support us, and to stand by us. So uh, my childhood, for the most part, was, was a good one, you know. But it wasn't one without its quirks. When I was five years old, and we were living in Germany at the time. My mother came up to me one time and she said, Skipper, because that's what she called me then, and she still calls me that to this day. My mother said, Skipper, she said, I got to talk to you about something a little bit important. She said, we're going to go see a man, and, and he's a judge, and this man is going to ask you, you know, certain questions about your father. And whatever questions he asked you, you know, say yes to them. And, you know, are you happy here in this family? You know, how does Leston treat you? Because that's my father's name, Leston. You know, how does he treat you and so forth? So a man is going to ask you some questions about that. You know, just answer them the way I'm telling you to answer them. And I said, well, okay. I mean, I was five years old. I had no clue what was going on. So sure enough, you know, we went to some building uh, I can remember going into a little small room, which now I'm pretty sure was the judge's chambers. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but we went back there and sure enough, there was a, a judge there with the typical judge clothes on. And he did start asking me questions. You know, how did I feel about being a part of this family? Uh, you know, what did I think about my dad? It wasn't that many questions, maybe four or five, I think that I can recall. And uh, I pretty much answered positive and affirmatively to all the questions. And so, you know, the judge said, well, okay, that's it. And we walked out of there and went home. I never gave it another thought. <laughs> but what I found out was later on, when the whole issue came up of him not being my biological father, when I went to go talk to my mom about it, that's when she brought that up. She says, Skipper, she said, remember when you was a little boy in Germany at five years old and you had to go talk to that judge? And I said, yeah. She said, well, that was the occasion that your father was officially adopting you. And I said, oh, so that's what that was about. <laughs> but at five years old, it didn't mean anything to me. I just went in and answered the questions and we came out of there. That's right. Skip was actually adopted, and he didn't know about it until he was in his 30s with kids of his own. But it took some discord in his father's life for that information to come out. My mother and father divorced. So some years later, my father remarried. And unfortunately, you know, some years into the marriage, uh, that relationship began to sour as well. Well, sometime prior to before that, my father had taken his then wife down to uh, Texas, because you know, my father's from Texas. And uh, you know, as his wife was visiting with some of the you know, older relatives, the conversation just came up that I was not, you know, Leston's biological son. When my father and her started having some, some issues in their marriage, as I was told, she threatened to call me 
and tell me personally that, you know, that Leston is not my father. As soon as she said that, my father called my mother and told her the situation. And he says, you know, Reba, my mother's name is Reba. He said, you know what? You need to tell Skip what's went on all this time. He needs to hear the story from you. So my mother called me one day and she was crying and trembling on the phone. And yes, I was 33 years old at this age, married and, but she called me on the phone and, you know, trembling and I could, I could tell there was a lot of anxiety there. And she said, Skip, I need you to, I need you to come over here because I got something real important to talk to you about. And I said, okay. So, you know, I got in my car and drove across town and went to her house. And so when I walked into the house, she was shaking and trembling and, you know, she was kind of crying and said, I got something I need to tell you. And, uh, and I basically said, just go ahead and tell me. I said, you know, just, you can relax and calm down, whatever it is, just, just go ahead and tell me. And she says, well, you remember when you were uh, five years old and you went before that judge, so on and so forth. And I said, yeah. She said, well, Leston is not your biological father. She said, uh, that was part of the adoption process. And I said, okay, so, you know what? And she kind of looked at me like, that's it? And I said, well, what, do you, what am I supposed to do? You know, and she said, and I said, first of all, I said, mom, that doesn't bother me. I said, it doesn't bother me at all. I said, you know, I, I wouldn't trade him for a father for any other man on this planet. I said, I've never felt like I was not a part of this family. I've never felt like he was not my father. Uh, I said, so, you know, you can relax, you know. I said, there's, there's nothing to be upset about. I said, I don't see that either of you did anything wrong. And she says, well, she said, Skip, you know, we never meant to keep this from you. She said, but, she says, but you guys just got along so well and did everything. She said, it just never came up. So I said, I'm okay. I said, I'm not mad at anybody, I'm not upset. And I said, so everybody can relax and calm down. It is what it is, let's keep moving. There's been absolutely no change, no altering whatsoever, none whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I think finding that out probably brought me even closer to my dad because after I found that out, I called him up and I said, you know what, dad, I love you even more. I said, because man, you took on a child that wasn't yours and gave me a great life. You know what he just said? He just said, well, Skipper, I love you too. And we didn't have a very long conversation about it. <laughs> it wasn't very long at all. I mean, I think the conversation might've been two or three minutes and it was over, you know? I grew up very, very secure knowing that my father was that kind of man. He just raised me to just be okay with who I am. and. I've learned that that's a very important position to know, is who in the world are you? <laughs> and what a beautiful story, a special thanks to Skip Reeves for telling it. Skip Reeves' story, a beautiful adoption story here on Our American Story. BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, 
We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 